morning, everybody. Good to be with you all. Good morning. Uh, did you all get one of these on the way in? It'll give you an idea. I'm looking at my, my wife and family. They go like, yeah. He always says this joke. Now you know when you're going to get to go home. You can keep track of where we're going. Um, and um, we're gonna, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the word. How about that? Father God, thank you so much that here we are, standing, sitting before you, gracefully broken, and we can do so only because your son was horrifically broken on a cross. His sacrifice has opened the way for us to be with you, and we are so grateful to be in your holy presence. Holy Spirit, would you now speak to us through your holy word? so that we might understand it and then apply it in our lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're uh, in a series on 1 Timothy. I think Pastor Paul's done a couple of sermons on that. He doesn't not. He does not. Excellent. Um, and so we're looking now at chapter 2. And if you have a Bible, uh, please open that up to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, if not, I'm going to do a reading now from of those verses. And you should be able to see those words coming up on the screen behind me. Uh, verse 1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So the title for this morning's talk is The Church Family Needs to Get Its Priorities Right. If it doesn't, the church tends to fall off the rails. At least that's my theory anyway. What's going on? Now we're on a family day weekend. The, the family, that's mum, dad, granddad, grandmum, grandchildren, siblings, whatever. The family is a marvelous invention of God's. He invented it. He came up with the idea. And he's a heavenly father. Around Christmas time, many times we'll read the, the first chapter from John's Gospel, and verse 12 there tells us that if you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, he gives you the right to be uh, a son or a daughter of the Father, to be his child. That's an incredible right and privilege. Not given to everybody, only those people who accept Jesus Christ. Not everybody is a child of God. They're all created in God's image. He loves them all. Jesus died for everyone. But only if you accept Jesus Christ as Lord are you his much-loved child. And so uh, we read that the family is integral to all that was going on. The family ideally should be the heart of the nation. And history shows us, if you look back through history and through various countries, that when families thrive, the nation thrives. But if families are undermined, then the nation descends into immoral chaos. 
And we're seeing evidence of that all around us at the moment. Now, in our country, I don't want to be negative about our country for the moment. I want to be positive. It's a very good thing that we have this weekend designated Family Day. I think that's a great gift that's been given to us. Something to remind us all the time. Families, in essence, they're about relationships, aren't they? Sometimes the relationships aren't too good, but we pray that relationships would grow and build. Relationship, of course, is at the heart of the Trinity. It's a beautiful relationship between the three members, persons of the Trinity. And therefore, relationships have to be at the heart of Christianity. Relationships are the heartbeat of a Christian community. I, I'm from London, England. And a survey was carried out in London. As a, it's a population of 9.6 million people. It's one or two people wandering around there. About a quarter of the population of Canada in that one city. But the result of this survey, this is what they said. If loneliness was a contagious disease, then there is a pandemic in London. You can be really lonely in a city of 9.6 million people. You know, in that respect, London is similar to York Region. We might only have a million or so, but you can be incredibly lonely here. When God designed you and me, when he wired us up in our mum's womb, he made us to be in community. That's how we function best. And our loneliness, our aloneness matters to him. That's why Psalm 67, God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Look at this bit. He sets the lonely in families. If you're here and you're lonely, if you come on your own, well done, good choice. You've come to a church family. Make yourself known. Don't wander out. These people will love on you. They'll welcome you. You found your home. Now, Paul, in this letter, Paul was writing to his disciple, Timothy, and you'll notice that he calls him my son. There's a, a, a wonderful relationship here between Paul and Timothy. Timothy was the leader of a church in Ephesus, and one of his aims, Paul's aims, was to help this young man, to share with him his wisdom and his experience so that Tim could get not only his own priorities right, but the church's priorities right as well. Paul's instructing Timothy how you can best lead the church. The church, remember, is the family of God. The church is comprised of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if you weren't here when Paul... What are you doing the last two weeks? Brilliantly expounded the last two weeks. Uh, the first chapter, here's a brief summary uh, of what Paul was doing. He was warning Timothy of the dangers of teachers who taught falsely, bad teaching, unhelpful. Those sort of people lead other people astray. They undermine the glorious gospel. And the result is you fracture the family. Not good. How do you counter that, Timothy? Well, Paul said to Timothy, you major on the outrageous grace of Jesus. Grace that Jesus pours out in abundance. We just sung about that in the last song. Timothy, you see, was to disarm the false teachers, not by beating them at their own game. That's not a clever strategy, actually. But through faith and love and humility. Paul acknowledged that he was the worst of sinners and effectively invites Timothy, come on, join me. Acknowledge it, you're not very good either. I'll start up here and admit, I'm the worst of sinners. Okay, that's not something I'm proud of. It's just something that's real. I'm, I'm, I'm there. 
But by God's grace and his grace alone, we can move forward. And so we come to chapter 2. And chapter 2 focuses on the father's family when they gather for a service of worship, rather like we're just doing right now. And Paul's helping Timothy navigate the difficult pressures that all senior pastors face. And I had the pleasure of being a senior pastor for many, many years. I know what this is about. See, we face the pressure to discern the format and the style and the elements of a worship service. And we know that we can't please everyone. We know that whatever we do, that someone's going to go, oh, I didn't like that. Well, that wasn't my scene. You've got that wrong. We know that's coming. Thank you so much for helping us in this way. But our biggest danger as senior pastors is this, that we try and please some people. That's our danger. We know we can't please everyone, but our danger is we try and please some. We try and people please some. That's not good. Ask yourself this question. You've come to this worship service. You're sitting there patiently listening to me prattle on. All right, you've watched this wonderful team come up here on the stage and, and, and lead us in sung worship. What's your role in this service? What's your role? Are you, are you the audience? Is that, is that what you think you are? Because audience, audiences go to places to be entertained and then to be the cricket, critic. You can be, if you go to the theater, you can be a critic. I didn't like that. Or I thought that was brilliant. But that's not your role. Everyone who comes to a worship service is expected to be a positive contributor. Not just people come up on the stage. Everyone. In fact, the audience at every service of worship is just one. The audience is God the Trinity. He is the only person we are here to please. He's the only well done we need and want to hear. Every one of us has a role. And this is what Paul is talking about. It's not just one or two and everybody else going, oh, I don't know what I was doing there, really. I wouldn't have been missed if I wasn't there. I should have laid in. You know, no. Every one of us has a role. And that's why if you look at verse 1, Paul says, first of all. Okay, he gets in the, right at the beginning. This is your first priority. When the father's family meets together, when his sons and daughters gather, the most important, the essential, the, the non-negotiable component of a church is that it is a worshiping, praying, relational community. This is what Paul is saying. This is your number one thing. Now, I'm going to say something which one or two of you, if you're built and wired up like me, might initially go, so I'll put it up on the screen so you don't think I've I've misspoken it. Worship and prayer, therefore, take precedence over evangelism. All right? Why is that? Partly because love for God is the first commandment. Jesus said, love God with everything you've got, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love for our neighbor is the second commandment. It's really important But love for God is the most important. Partly because long after all of our evangelistic efforts have been completed, we're going to spend eternity worshiping the Lord. So if you think of this little part here between my two hands is the whole time that creation exists before Jesus returns and and, and everything becomes a new creation. And our little role in here is this much. Eternity 
stretches on forever. Partly because evangelism itself, evangelism, by the way, is telling people about Jesus Christ, is an act of worship, a very practical act. It's bringing glory to Jesus. And partly because when we worship God, and not just in song, by the way, in every aspect, it reveals Jesus as Lord. Because that's, our worship makes no sense if Jesus is not Lord. It makes absolutely no sense. So we're revealing in our act to an unbelieving community that this is what we believe. Now, don't mishear me. I'm talking here about priorities in a worship service. I'm not undermining evangelism. It's vital. And making disciples is an imperative. And we're going to come on to that in the second part of this talk. But, so we're going to look at the, the first part. Now, what for me in any service is a non-negotiable is that, that there always has to be the Bible faithfully preached. To me, that's a non-negotiable. I feel like I've been shortchanged if I go to which I know what, what happened or what didn't happen. But having said that, let me stress that it's important that every church service has a balanced ministry of the word of God and prayer. We've got to have it balanced. The word instructs the church and prayer inspires the church to obey the word. So if a church has an abundance of Bible teaching, but little prayer, there's, there's much light, but no heat. You end up with orthodoxy and frozen people. <laughs> On the other extreme, you have a church that has much prayer, much great religious enthusiasm, but little teaching of the word. And the fruit of that is a people with great zeal, but no knowledge. All right, we've got to get the balance. And that's what we're looking for. So if you're following the notes, the first point I want to make, I think Paul makes, therefore, is that according to Paul, a church community should be praying, prayer is a priority, for everyone. He begins his teaching with Timothy with this central importance of prayer. He's saying prayer has got to be taken seriously. You've got to prepare for it. If you're leading the prayers in the service, you've got to work on it beforehand. Don't just come up and have libits. It should feature prominently. Now, I've, I discovered, by the way, as a, a senior pastor of a church, the quickest way to empty a, a service, empty a, a room after a service. You, you say you want to get everyone out of here after the 11 o'clock service because you've got to get ready for Winterfest. Here's the way, Pastor Paul, is how you empty the church. We're going to start the church prayer meeting in five minutes. Gone. Just gone. You go, like, where was everybody? You can pray for 45 minutes, walk outside. They're still there having coffee. I'm just telling the truth. And you go like, what? It's just not a priority. Prayers are boring, whatever it is. But not only are prayer meetings lost their stature and importance, prayers during services have also been minimized. You know, we've got to recall the old saying, much prayer, much power, no prayer, no power. It's simple, but it's true. So when giving instructions in public worship, uh, Paul began with the public prayers of the church. So he's saying, Tim, I want to tell you how to do a public service, and you've got to have these prayers. And you'll notice that these prayers weren't for their immediate concerns. He was to, they were to pray for the world at large. Paul mentions four different kinds of worship, and I want you to see these words as worship. That's one of the problems. People say, what have these got together? Petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving. They're all worship. 
But there's a single theme that links them all. They're to be made for all people. So he's urging the church family, begin your prayers for the people who who hold the world together by their rule, their leadership, and their authority. That's where you begin your prayers. If we lived in a country, and we don't, praise God for this, but if we lived in a country that had suffered an unstable government or, or, or tyranny for many years, and if we lived with the dread of that, that wasn't very good, was it? That's better. A knock on the door after dark, and it meant the secret police was coming to take you away and get tortured or possibly killed. And if we lived under a government that knew about this and was actually even directly responsible for this, and you need to know this is happening around the world. I'm not just making up a scenario. My suspicion is that we would be praying night and day for good, strong, wise, just rulers. And since we now live in a global village where messages and pictures and sounds can flash around the world at the speed of light, where the pain of someone in Gaza can instantly appear on screens in Canada, should we not be joining together and praying for good government worldwide? When I was at school, not that long ago, okay, a long time ago, but when I was at school, I, was, uh, I had to do a project, and, and the paper was called The Nine Days of Dunkirk, which might mean absolutely nothing to most of you here. Uh, there was an issue in the Second World War, 1940, and a place called Dunkirk, which is a French port. And what had happened was that the British soldiers had gone across into France to try and defend France. They couldn't, and the German divisions were coming fast, and the, the soldiers were caught in the port of Dunkirk, with the English Channel on their west side and the German divisions coming at them from the east. And it was hopeless. And that's when I learned as I was researching this that King George VI, the king of Great Britain at that time, called the country to prayer. And the amazing thing was the country prayed. I think now if King Charles III did the same thing, most people would go like, what? But they prayed. Now listen to what happened. For nine days, nine days, the sea became unusually calm and the skies were unusually foggy. So foggy that the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, couldn't raid. So calm that out of southern England, every form of boat from trawlers to little dinghies could make it across the channel to Dunkirk and bring soldiers back without any problems at all. The result was, here are the figure, 338,000 troops were saved. And the, the course of the war was changed. Was that a coincidence? 1986, President Marcus of the Philippines was toppled. Filipino Christians attributed his downfall, I will quote, not to people power, but to prayer power. Coincidence? I myself was in South Africa in 1994, the beginning of 1994, in the lead up to that extraordinary election that took place when we had the first goodbye to apartheid and Mandela became president. And I traveled around that country and, and, and everywhere I went there was such fear that some idiot was going to get a gun and cause violence and the whole thing was, it was like a tinderbox. 
And everywhere I went, not just prayer meetings, you just went up for dinner for someone, you went to the movies, you just had a coffee, everybody was praying. I don't think I've ever been in a place, scenario, country where there was so much prayer. It was like, wow! And that election passed off peacefully. Coincidence? Can you imagine what might happen today if the father's children throughout the world, throughout this country, heck, throughout your region, made it a priority to commit to believing, persevering prayer? Now notice that Paul specifically directed the churches to pray for kings and all those in authority. And that was a remarkable instruction because at that time no Christian ruler existed. He couldn't say, well, I'm just going to pray for the Christian ones. There weren't any. The reigning Roman emperor was vain, cruel Nero. And his hostility to Christian faith was well known. The Christians were really anxious. But they, just like us, had recourse to prayer. Even when we cannot respect the men and women in authority, and here I'm talking to myself, I struggle with this. I really do. We must respect their offices and pray for them. Now, our prayers can be honest. Lord, transform them with the gospel or remove them. That's perfectly good. But at least pray for them. Praying for pagan countries and their leaders, by the way, was not a new idea. Jeremiah had instructed the exiles to pray for Babylon's peace and prosperity, Jeremiah 29. And under what King Darius did, he confirmed the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. And in that confirmation, he requested the Jews to pray for the well-being of the king. That was him and his sons. The primary focus of these prayers for national leaders, we read in verse 2, is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Good governments generally bring peace. Everyone benefits from peace. And peaceful conditions actually make it easier to share the gospel. There is a reason the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, because of the Pax Romana. There weren't all these wars going on. I'm not saying Christians weren't persecuted. Clearly they were. But it really helped the gospel move around. And even when the country like Canada, is not Christian. We're not a Christian country. We're not led by Christians. Our prayers must still be infused with thanksgiving. We must always be grateful for answers to prayer, thankful for who God is, celebrating all that he does in his outrageous grace. So that's the first priority. The church family should pray for everyone. And our second priority, we're reading in verses 3 and 4, God loves all people and is concerned for all people. So don't miss the reason that Paul gives for this in verse 3, for these prayers for all the people. So his reason for that, that first priority is because this is good and pleases God our Savior. That's what Paul is saying. You pray like this, you're pleasing. Just a reminder, there is only one Savior. We sang that this morning. That Savior isn't Caesar. It isn't any other human being, no matter how powerful they are. All human beings, we're rebellious. We're in a position of wrong relationship with God. We cannot save ourselves. And we don't merit, we don't deserve salvation because we're not good, let alone good enough. Our miserable destination is hell. Let's just acknowledge that. 
But verse 4 tells us, and it makes it very clear, God's desire is for all people to be saved. In other words, we don't have a wrathful God on a throne just wishing he never created us and get rid of these miserable people. What a mistake it was. We have a loving God who doesn't want judgment and death for anyone and has given us the opportunity to receive forgiveness and life. And that is why Jesus commissioned us to preach the gospel to all nations. It's why Paul commands us to pray for their salvation. I want you to think about the gospel. If the gospel is true, if this is true, it must be true for all people. That's what we just read there. God wants all people to be saved. Uh, It must be universally true. In other words, if the gospel is true for me, it must also be true for you. And if it's not true for you, it cannot by definition be true for me. If you cannot be saved by faith in the crucified Lord Jesus, then neither can I be saved. So it's either good news for everybody or it's not good news for anybody. We live in a world full of distortion, don't we? We live in a world where we're actually not too sure if now what we're reading is fake news or it's been manipulated. Who do we believe? What's going on? But as Christians, we know that behind all of this confusion in the spiritual realms, there's an enemy. And he is called the deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. Which means that the truth is hard to discern. Jesus, though, claimed to be the truth. Jesus told us, John 8, verse 32, if we know the truth, then the truth will set us free. Now, please note, look at the verse, Jesus did not say that the truth will set us free. I got you awake there, didn't it? Because you're looking at the screen going, no, no, he did, it says so. But that's actually not what Jesus said. You see, although the gospel truth has been faithfully proclaimed for almost 2,000 years, tragically, sadly, so far, many people have not yet been saved and set free by it. We know so many people who aren't following Jesus. Why is that? Well, in most cases, it's because they've never heard the gospel. Simple, isn't it? And if they have heard the gospel, they haven't understood it. They haven't comprehended it. So Jesus said you have to know. In other words, you have to understand the truth in order to be set free by the truth. And that is what Paul is reiterating in verse 4 when he said the Lord God wants, and I quote, all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's how they're going to hear the gospel. That is the only way they're going to be set free and saved. It has to be proclaimed to all people because the one God desires all people to be saved. If we have that understanding, it is logical to believe that Jesus died for all people. So that means that there's only one way that anyone could be saved by confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it also means there's no exceptions to that. Now, both the Old and the New Testaments, the Old and the New Covenant, verse 5, affirm that there is only one God. Paul then added to this statement an essential, uniquely Christian, exclusive claim that there is only one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator, if you didn't know, is an intermediary. He's the person or she's the person in the middle. 
Someone who tries to effect a reconciliation between two rival parties. In this case, between a holy God and wicked, rebellious people. You might recall Job's longing in Job chapter 9. Job said, if only there was someone to arbitrate, mediate between us, to lay hand upon us both. So an intermediary must be able to represent both sides equally. In Jesus Christ, Job's cry has been answered. Jesus is fully God. He's 100% divine. And simultaneously fully man, he's 100% human. Jesus lived the holy, perfect life that we, we should have lived. We didn't, but we should have done. And therefore, he identifies uh, with the Father fully, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He lived the holy life. But then he died the sinner's death, that we should have died. And therefore, he fully identifies with you and me, with us. And that means Jesus is the only person qualified who's ever existed to represent both parties. No one else can. Verse 6 reminds us that Jesus was both a sacrifice and a ransom. A sacrifice. Jesus gave himself. means he sacrificed himself. He offered himself deliberately and voluntarily as a sacrifice for my sin and yours. That's what Jesus meant when he claimed to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom. He said the Son of Man had come to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is the price paid to free a slave. All of humanity, we are enslaved to sin and judgment. We're unable to save ourselves. Jesus' death was the ransom price that paid in full for our deliverance. So in effect, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm embellishing these verses, but what Paul is saying in verses 5 and 6 is I'm, he's summarizing Jesus' rescue mission of humanity. In, in part of it, we can see that that must therefore include the incarnation when for the first time God became a part of his creation. Up to that point, God had created everything. He's the, he's the creator. He'd been involved with creation but at the incarnation, he became a part of it. He became atoms and molecules. He became bones and marrows. He became flesh and blood. He became fully human. He became a man. And then we see his crucifixion when on that cross Jesus became sin and took the death penalty of sin upon himself. And the immortal one, because he's now flesh and blood, was able to bleed and die. That's why he could be there for us as our ransom, in our place, as our substitute. And then we see his resurrection when death was defeated and his ascension when Jesus assumed his rightful place of rule and authority on the throne of God at the right hand of the Father where he is right now. And we know from this passage what he is doing. He is acting as our mediator. All of those things go together logically for what Paul said. And he is constantly interceding for us on our behalf as our propitiation before our Holy Father. Which means, as I said before, Jesus is the only hope for our world. Not politicians, not armies, not economics, not education, not science, not even the church. Just Jesus. Only Jesus. 
Jesus is the holy, sinless God-man, the perfect sacrifice, our ransom payer, our intercessory mediator. But having said all that, his sacrifice is in vain unless people are told about it. It's in vain. This church family is our God-given purpose. We must ensure that everyone knows and understands this truth so that they can then accept it, believe it, and be saved. That's why it's imperative that we prioritize prayer. That's why it's so urgent that we prioritize proclaiming the gospel in its fullness, in cl with clarity to as many people as possible. These are why these are the two big priorities that Paul is talking about. You'll see in verse 7, Paul described himself as a herald and a true and faithful teacher. Paul had a passion for Jesus and his glory. Make no bones about that. He also had a compassion for the lost and the perishing. Paul's unashamed desire and priority was to depopulate hell and populate heaven. This great good news, this gospel of grace, still needs to be made known. It needs to be heralded. It needs to be taught throughout the world. And we, just like Paul and Timothy and that church in Ephesus, we have been commissioned by Jesus, and we've been given his authority to do this. We've been equipped by the Holy Spirit to ensure that our message will bear much fruit and a harvest of souls. The challenge I'm going to leave you with is this. Are we willing to be obedient to Jesus' great commission? Is his great commission our priority? And if our response is yes, I pray that it is, then we must rise to the challenge and embark on the adventure of a lifetime. The first thing we must do, therefore, is pray for all people. Then we need to proclaim the gospel. And finally, we need to be faithful teachers who make disciples of all nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving each one of us so much that you gave your only son to be our redeemer and our savior. We are gr deeply grateful. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place as our ransom, for being our mediator and intercessor. Thank you for never giving up on us. Holy Spirit, please help us to persevere in prayer for the leaders in our country and for all who do not know Jesus as their Lord. Please equip us to be your courageous heralds and faithful teachers of the gospel. May we love the lost with the same compassion you have for them. We ask these things in Jesus' powerful name.